Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Feldman-Barrett. Dr. Barrett is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. In addition to her book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and her popular TED Talk, Dr. Barrett has published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers in the world's top journals. She received the Pioneer Award from the National Institutes of Health Directors for her revolutionary research on emotion in the brain. These highly competitive multi-million dollar awards are given to scientists of exceptional creativity who are expected to transform biomedical and behavioral research. As a result of her revolutionary findings, she has testified before Congress, uh, presented her research to the FBI, consulted to the National Cancer Institute, and been a featured guest on television and radio programs all around the globe. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Now, I, I said just before we click record, um, I've, I've had a few moments when, actually, actually rewind, I think I, I came across your work for the first time about a year ago, and I was watching, um, I was listening to the podcast Invisibilia, and the one on emotions, and after hearing that, I recommend I'll, everyone should just check that out anyway, but after that, my brain was just going, like, my brain just felt weird for, like, for days afterwards, I was trying to, like, make sense of the stuff that I learned in it, so... I'm excited to delve into some of those things. Um, and I'm, going to I'm pick still trying brains. to make sense of it. So, I'm still, you know, I've been, I, <laughs> you've, been doing, you've been doing it for 25 years and it's still, you're still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. <laughs> so if your brain's hurt too listening to this, stick with it. We're, uh, we're, I'm going to try and we're going to try and do it in like layman's language. But I thought a way just to almost set this up is I'm just going to say like just three statements which seem quite logical, but actually they're all incorrect. So incorrect. Emotions are built into our brain from birth. We're wired to feel X or that evolution has wired us to feel Y. So for example, we see a lion, we feel fear, we run away. The emotion fear is built into us. That makes sense. It feels logical, but actually that's wrong. Yeah, that's correct. Another one is that, yeah, emotions are automatic reactions to the world. Also wrong. And that emotions are our universal language uh they're built into us and it's something that connects all seven billion of us also not correct so i just thought just chuck those out there to start with for every Uh, for every emotion category that you have in the u.s that you think is biologically basic and universal there's at least one culture in the world that doesn't possess a concept for that emotion and so where people don't even feel that emotion be it fear happiness grief anger sadness there's there's so that that's proof that it's not universal the fact that you, that you can actually identify a culture or society who don't even understand that emotion that well right? a lot of scientists would say it's not proof they would say listen your concept for an emotion is something different than the emotion itself so they would say you know you have you're born with a a network you know a network or a circuit in your brain for anger um and everyone's born with that circuit. Everyone can, you know, experience anger, but they might not have a concept for anger. So concepts are separate from emotions themselves. There's an assumption in psychology, or there used to be an assumption, I would say, that the phenomenon is separate from your understanding of the phenomenon. Okay. So the um, emotion is in there, in your brain, in your body, but but if you don't have a concept for it, it just means that you can't talk about it. You can't um, maybe perceive it in other people, but you certainly can feel it. That would be the idea. 
Um, and so, but you know, if you, there is no objective measure of any emotion category. Um, you can't measure someone's face and know exactly how they feel. You can't measure their body and know exactly how they feel. You can't measure their brain and know exactly how they feel. You can't measure all of those things and know exactly how they feel because anger is not a thing. It's a category of highly variable instances. Sometimes when you're angry, you uh, scowl. But sometimes when you're angry, you cry. Sometimes you smile. Sometimes you sit quietly and seethe and plot the demise of your enemy. You know, sometimes, depending on what your brain is preparing you to do, your heart rate could go up, it could go down, it could stay the same. Um, similarly, when you look at people's brains, um, when you're doing brain scanning, for example, you know, in one study, you might find a pattern of activity that's distributed across the brain that distinguishes anger from sadness, let's say. But if you try to use that pattern to identify anger in some other experiment, using some other set of people with some other method for inducing anger, it won't work. So that doesn't mean that everything is random and there's no there there. It means that anger is a category of highly variable instances and that you have to understand something about the context that the person is in. And the context doesn't just include who they're with or what time of day it is. It also includes what state were they just previously in before anger, right? The context is also temporal. So you, you need to understand something about the context to understand how the brain is building emotion in that instance. You know, emotions are not built into your brain at birth, but your brain does build emotions as you need them with a set of ingredients. Some of those ingredients are universal um, and some are not. So if they're not built in from birth, they're guesses, aren't they? You talk about emotions as guesses. They're guesses that our brain constructs in the moment. What, 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 what does a guess or a prediction mean? Before to answer your question, we have to sort of back up a little sure, bit. Sure, absolutely. Um, and say a couple of things that your, that your viewers might not know. Um, one is that um, while emotions are not built into your brain from birth and don't unify us, uh, you know, all 7 billion of us as, as humans, um, we do have simple feelings of pleasantness, of unpleasantness, pleasure, pain, comfort, discomfort, um, feeling really worked up, feeling really calm. Those feelings are pretty much built in from birth. They are a function of how we experience our bodies, right? So um, if you look around the room um, or you look at me or I look at you, we, um, we have very, a lot of um, definition in our vision. We, we can see a lot of detail. Same thing with hearing, you know, you can hear a lot of detail. But the sensations that come from your body, you don't experience in a lot of detail, um, you, if you did, you'd never pay attention to anything outside your own skin ever again, frankly, because there's just a lot going on in there. So instead we sense what's going on inside our bodies with these simple feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, you know, I feel great. I feel like crap. I feel, uh, comfortable. I feel uncomfortable. The, those feelings are built in from birth. They're not emotions. They're much simpler than emotions. 
Um, they're with us every waking moment of our lives because our brains, you know, your brain is controlling your body every waking moment of your life. And so they are part of every experience you have. They're sort of properties of consciousness. And in our culture, when they're very intense, uh, this, you know, these simple feelings that are kind of like your barometer readings of what's going on inside your body. Is everything okay? Is something wrong? We tend to make them into emotions. Now, actually, the body turns out to be a really key piece of understanding, not just how emotions are made, but how your brain works, basically. So your brain, brains didn't evolve to have emotions or to see or to think brains evolved to control the systems of a body and the way that brains control bodies is predictively so to us it feels like you know we something happens in the world and we see it and then we process its meaning so we see a snake and then we you know we evaluate is that snake going to harm me or is it not? And then we plan an action and, uh, and then we act. It seems to us like it's this very straightforward kind of stimulation by the world and, and then we react. But actually, that's a really inefficient way to run a brain. The way that brains evolved is they evolved to anticipate the needs of the body in advance and try to meet those needs before they arise. So that's actually very efficient. So it turns out, and this is something that engineers have later discovered, that if you want to run a system really efficiently, what you do is you model that system, you run an internal model of that system that predicts what's going to happen in the system, and then the system sends information and corrects that model. So your brain, basically, is an internal model of what's going on in your body in relation to what's happening in the world. And it's predicting, it's predicting. And then when it gets information from the world, vision, audition, you know, hearing, smells and so on, when it gets information from the body, it uses that information to confirm its predictions or correct them. And in psychology, we have a fancy name for correcting your predictions. It's called learning. <laughs> basically. So right now, for example, to us, it feels like we are just listening to each other and reacting to the words that we're speaking. But actually, based on years and years and years of listening and learning the um, statistical regularities in the sounds of English, of the English words, Actually, our brains are predicting. So right now you're predicting every single word that I am <laughs> saying. Exactly. And in fact, if you can't make those predictions, then to you, the sounds will just sound like noise. This is what it, that's what it sounds like when you hear a language that you don't actually understand. You can't you can't predict. Similarly, you know, if your brain is going to stand you up, it actually raises your blood pressure before you stand predictively so that the oxygen, the blood can get to your brain and you don't faint because, you know, fainting is really expensive from a metabolic standpoint. And um, the way I sometimes explain it to people is think about a game of baseball. So a pitcher is 
is trying to throw a ball that um, the batter is going to have a hard time hitting. If the batter, um, if the batter waits to see the ball before he mounts his uh, swing, he'll miss the ball because your motor system just can't work that fast. It's, it's kind of physically impossible, basically. So what's happening is as the pitcher is throwing the ball, the batter's brain is actually making predictions about where that ball is going to be. And his brain prepares his motor system to swing at where he predicts the ball is going to be. And this is all happening outside of his awareness He's not consciously thinking about it and planning. This is just how brains work. So this is why baseball is actually a really interesting sport because it's like a game of wits between a batter and a pitcher. The pitcher is trying to psych the batter out. The batter is trying to predict what the pitcher is going to do. And actually all sports where two people are throwing something back and forth or like hockey, tennis, football, they're all soccer. They're all, all of these games basically take advantage of the predictive power of a human brain. Um, but to us, that's not the way it feels. We have to devise fancy, you know, illusion, visual illusions to demonstrate to people the predictive power of their own brains. You know, if you can show somebody a piece of paper and it might have just problems with grammar, but if you just look at it, you might not even see it. So you might have, uh, today I went to the, the, the park, and then you just read it as, today I went to the park, because you understand, you've read a sentence so many times, your brain just doesn't even see the, the two extra, the, the's. Is, is that kind of in a way similar to what you were saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And, and this is why it's so hard to proofread your own work, you know, because you know, <laughs> you know what you meant to say. And so you're having a prediction error, meaning your brain is predicting there's only one the there, but there are actually two the's on the page. Now, you don't take in all prediction error and learn it because that would be not just metabolic inefficient. It would be it would be like wasting resources because not all information in the world or in your body that you that your brain is not predicting not all of it is important your brain also predicts what is likely to be important and what isn't so for example um, there are these wonderful demonstrations of a phenomenon called inattentional blindness where you'll have a bunch of people who are like playing basketball and then a gorilla walks on this you know walks across the screen and no one sees it because it's not predicted it's not relevant to the person's goal. And so the brain doesn't care about it. The way that I would say it is this, your brain can't take in all the information that surrounds you. It's, it's just not possible. It has to make decisions about where to invest and what to ignore. And this is actually true of all animals. So when we talk about an animal's environment, the animal's environment isn't your environment, isn't everything that ar that's around you. It's the things that are around you that matter to you, that matter to your well-being, that matter to your survival. And in uh, evolutionary biology, or just in biology, scientists call that a niche, a niche. You talk about like the legal system quite a lot. And can you give me some examples of the, the flip side of where it's actually some of the dangers, perhaps? Some of our best sort of superpowers and some of our worst maybe errors actually derive from procedures in brains that have evolved to be metabolically efficient. So for example, 
it's not metabolically efficient for you to learn every object as a distinct and separate from every other, right? So for example, here I have an object and here I have an object, okay? Trying to show it so there's no label so, showing. So if you're just listening, we've got a water bottle and a coffee cup. Right, a water bottle and a coffee cup. Now the water bottle is um, looks nothing like the coffee cup. The water bottle is tall and thin and clear, right? And it has a very small opening at the top. The coffee cup is, oh, and it's made of plastic. And the coffee cup, and it's squishy. The coffee cup is rigid. It's, it's um, short. It's got a very wide mouth. It's not plastic. It's actually cardboard, and it's dark uh, brown. Okay. So perceptually, perceptually, these two things don't look the same. They don't look the same. They don't feel the same. When you place them down, they don't sound the same. But functionally, if I were, wanted to drink from both of them, they would be the same. They would be similar. Okay? If what I needed in the next instance was something to drink from, I would treat these two things as being part of the same category because they have the same function, even though they don't look the same, sound the same, feel the same. However, if I needed, let's say, um, a vase for flowers, the bottle, the plastic bot water bottle would serve that job very well, but the cup, the coffee cup wouldn't. It's too short, the flower would fall out. So if that was the case, I needed the vessel to be a flower holder vase, then they wouldn't be similar at all. We learn with words that sometimes these belong to the same category. We have a concept that they sometimes belong to the same category because they're serving the same function. And so this is an efficient way to do things, okay? If I were to, to, to find some other object that you've never seen before, and I, I show it to you, your brain doesn't ask, what is this? Your brain asks, what is this similar to in my past experience? Similar how? Well, similar in terms of the sights or how what it looks like, what it tastes like, what it smells like, what it feels like, or maybe what its function is. It's really what the brain cares about is what its function is and how you know, you're gonna manipulate it or use it. So that's a really efficient, that's efficient. The problem is that once we give it a name, we say, aha, these are both cups or drinking vessels or whatever. Once we, we take all of these things which don't look the same, don't sound the same, don't feel the same, we give them the same name, that makes us believe that there is an underlying sameness, essence, to these, all these objects which look very different from one another. And as a consequence, we believe that the similarity is out in the world, in the objects, not in our own heads. And essentialism is a problem. What we end up doing is we end up assuming that there's some deep, unchanging reality to the things that we group together into a category as similar when in fact the similarity is often in our own in our own heads, not actually in the world. So, for example, really every country has to struggle with um, stereotyping and some some form of prejudice, right? So, when I lived in Canada, the problem was really more around French versus English, 
and also native um, Canadians versus European uh, people of European descent. In the U.S., it's skin color, you know. It's um, how much melanin do you have in your skin? Are you dark-skinned or are you light-skinned? Um, and the assumption is that racism really is the assumption that there's some deep underlying um, you're using a stereotype that that all of the people who are dark skinned versus light skinned um, are different in some deep, um, uh, immutable, unchanging, important way that causes problems. <laughs> you know, same thing happens with emotions. So the assumption is if, if you experience anger when you're scowling, when you're yelling, when you're crying, when you're laughing, uh, all of those are anger, then the, it leads people to believe that there's some underlying unchanging essence of anger like a neural circuit that is the basis of anger or the basis of regret so you know any emotion even though it looks variable on its surface the, the assumption is that there's some essence to it um, that makes it makes all the instances what they are this is a problem because if you don't see evidence of the essence then you sometimes can make make inferential mistakes. So for example, one of the ones I talk about in my book is the trial of the Boston Marathon bomber. And I should say at the outset, I'm now speaking to you only as a scientist. I'm not giving my personal opinion about whether I think he should be sentenced uh, to the death penalty or not. I'll also say that the bombing took place a mile from my office. And he was caught about, a, like, I think about a mile and a half or two miles from my house. So, you know, we were in lockdown for a number of days, actually, while the police were searching for him. So what I'm about to say is not a political statement. It's a scientific statement. OK, not personal at all. But this is a guy who came from a Chechen culture. So he is from a culture of honor. And in a culture of honor... When you, especially Chechen culture, when you do something that you regret, the way that you show that is you show respect for your adversary. You, you don't cry. You don't weep. You don't wrench your clothing. The best thing that you can do to demonstrate your regret is to, to be respectful and, and basically be stoic in the face of your punishment. That's like the highest honor that you can give to your, your opponent. In American culture, to show regret, you cry, you beg, you weep, you, 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 know, you tear at your clothing. You're basically very, very demonstrative. If you assume that regret is a category where that has some kind of underlying, you know, essence. essence to it, then when you watch Zakhar Sarnayev not shed a tear, right, um, during his trial, you will assume he doesn't regret the terrible harms that he caused people. And he caused people terrible harms. And in fact, in the U.S., juries have to make the decision about whether or not to give someone life in prison or the death penalty. This is called a capital case. And in such cases, the primary determinant of whether juries award someone life in prison or the death penalty is whether they believe uh, the defendant is regretful or not. So 
Tsarnaev didn't appear, he didn't express regret in an American way. And so the jury didn't believe that he was regretful and they sentenced him to death. I was shocked that his lawyers didn't actually bring up the cultural variation in emotional expressions. Um, there's tremendous variability, actually, within a culture, there's tremendous variability. You yourself show tremendous variability, but, you know, definitely across cultures. But his lawyers never mentioned that. You know, in the first draft of my book, when I wrote it, I basically said, you know, who knows whether he feels regret? We'll never know. Well, then, actually, when I was doing this, the revision of the book, it turned there was more about Tsarnaev in the news, and it turned out he had written all of these letters, personal letters to the victims, uh, well before his trial, apologizing, asking for forgiveness, explain, you know, basically taking responsibility and um, expressing regret for the harms that he had caused. And those letters were not admissible in court. They were actually barred as evidence. Now you could say, well, you know, he, maybe he was just lying. He didn't feel regret. He just was saying that he did to get a lighter sentence. Who knows? I mean, I don't think any of us really know, but here's what I do know. In the United States, the Supreme Court has said that you have to be able to know the hearts and minds of the defendant in order for that defendant to get a fair trial. You have to be able to look at someone, listen to someone, and really know their intent in order for them to get a fair trial. Well, if you're just using someone's facial movements or their body posture or their vocalizations, you're guessing what is in their minds. You can't know for sure. And if you have 12 people on a jury, they're guessing, they're all guessing. Right. They're all guessing. And in in Cernayev's case, they were using the wrong guesses that the, the guesses didn't match his cultural uh, way of expressing things. The point is, though, if you are a defendant in a courtroom in the United States, in other countries, uh, the death penalty doesn't exist. Um, but juries pretty much work the same way. If you are different, substantially different, culturally different from members of your of the jury who are judging you. You uh, are in trouble because they are going to use a set of um, knowledge to guess at predict, guess at the meaning of uh, your actions that may not be consistent with uh, the knowledge that guided your actions in the first place. The thing that made my brain go the funniest when I heard that previous interview and so I'm going to say what my understanding of what it was and correct me if I get any of it wrong, but it was the parallel between emotions and vision. And so, for example, with vision, if we didn't have a concept for an object, say table or chair, then we wouldn't even be able to see that object. So we just see bright and dark. So, for example, I, I've got this concept, construct, story, whatever you call it, of tableness. It's table is flat surface, four legs. So the fact that I've got that concept in my head, therefore, when I see a table, I can actually see it. If I had, if I didn't have the concept of tableness in my head, then I couldn't, I wouldn't even be able to see the object. It would right, just be still, bright and dark. That's what blew yeah. my mind. Well, let me go even further though and say. Um, part of the concept, your concept of table, 
is that it has a flat surface that you can put things on. It, there's a functional aspect, right? So lots of things can serve as a table. A car hood can serve as a table. Um, a couch can serve as a table, right? So you're, and you're able to see that. So, but, but that's right. If you don't have a concept, if your brain can't make a concept for something, then you can't see it. That may sound preposterous to people, but your brain basically is constantly facing a, a category construction problem. When it receives input from the world or from the body, it's not asking, what is this? It's asking, what is this like? What is this similar to from my past experience? And, it, and if you don't have past experiences that you can somehow combine to make sense of this sensory input, your brain just treats it as noise. That's why when you hear the sounds of a language that you don't have concepts for, you, to you it sounds like noise. That's why when you hear music that's from a different culture that has a different scale to it, to you it sounds like noise. Like in my book I talk about how you know, my daughter at a certain point was like, fascinated with dubstep and I was like what is this just sounds like noise to me and then you know of course I was like oh, only old people say that about their kids music you know that's just a horrible thing to say but so so what is your brain doing it's 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 not waiting for the input to come and then say what is this like it's actually anticipating what's what the input's going to be and the way that it anticipates it is it launches a set of predictions it starts to change the firing of its own neurons to anticipate the sensory input. And it doesn't launch one prediction, it launches a bunch, because it's not really sure, brain's not really sure which sensory inputs are going to happen. It's sort of estimating the probabilities. There could be several prior experiences you have that are being kind of re-established in the brain as a prediction of what's about to come. And this set of predictions is basically a concept. It's you're using your past to make a prediction about what's about to happen. And if you're correct, that means you will have categorized the incoming input as similar to these representations in your mind, in your brain, which are the concept. Basically, they're the prior knowledge that makes sense of the incoming input. And this can be proved with, say, for example, someone's born blind or they got an issue they got a problem with a cataract and later on at life maybe 30 years later they suddenly have the cataracts removed and so what would what would happen to that person potentially like yeah so there are a number of cases where people are born with cat they're either born with cataracts which are uh, the cataracts are sufficiently severe that no input from the eye from the retina uh, makes it to the brain and so they're functionally blind and then their cataracts are then removed later in life in as adults. Uh, or you also have cases where people have corneal damage, which causes the same problem that no light makes it in from the world to the retina, which, to the brain. And then at some point people have a, you know, in, as adults, they'll have a corneal transplant. What you would imagine would happen is that immediately upon um, light entering the retina, they'd be able to see. But actually, that's not true. They, they don't see. In fact, they have to learn to see because they have no prior experience with seeing. Our brains are pattern learners. So when we're born, we, we don't learn vision. We learn sights and sounds and smells and so on 
all together as a pattern. And so someone who can't see learns the pattern, but without vision, right? So they, their patterns don't have vision in them. Their patterns in their brains have sounds and smells and touches and so on, but no vision. And so when vision comes along, finally, visual input makes it to the brain, that information is not integrated with their concepts. They don't know anything. They can't, so they don't see. They have to learn to see. They have to get experience with seeing before. And they, con they consciously have to guess at what the visual input means because their brains aren't doing it automatically because they're not wired up like that, right? An infant brain isn't like a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that's waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world experience wires your brain. If your experience doesn't include vision, then your brain isn't wired for vision. And when you get visual input as an adult, your brain then has to learn how to see in the same way that you might learn a second language, for example. Um, you have to consciously guess at what the sounds are when you're learning a second language, what they mean. You have to guess where the word breaks are. And similarly, when people are experientially blind, you know, as their brains were being wired as, as, as infants and children, they weren't uh, getting visual input to the brain. When that visual input comes as grown-ups, they have to learn to see in a very deliberate way. And they're guessing in a very deliberate way. And things that we take for granted, you know, like is someone male or female, turns out to be super hard for people to learn to see, to distinguish just with vision. Okay, taking that example, so when people start to see, like, like you're a child and you, like, you learn, okay, you're ABC and then you learn slightly, like you learn how to put words together and then it gets more and more complicated. If I had a cataract and it got removed, when vision started to come, would I start to have some clarity between... I don't know, maybe basic objects that I've got a concept for. Table, chair, um, light. But then, so I could see some of the picture, but then I still would not be able to see maybe more confusing objects, like, I don't know, record player, avocado. So would I be able to have, like, some things crisp, yeah, and then sure. other things would just be blurry, just simply because I don't know what an avocado is, or whatever. Yes, exactly. So, for example... Infants are not born being able to see a face. They have to learn to see a face. They have to learn what a face is. Now, no one actually sits them down and, con you know, explicitly teaches a newborn baby, this is a face. But faces have statistical regularities in their features. And so if you just show a baby a lot of faces. Just pattern like recollection. The, just The baby's brain starts to learn, for example, where the eyes are where the sound will be coming from out of the mouth and so on. Babies have to learn to see. When they're born, they don't recognize their mothers by sight. They recognize their mothers by smell. Infants have to learn to see faces, but they learn very quickly. Like within a couple of days, they, they learn to see a face. And the same is also true for people who were functionally blind and then had some kind of operation. They can learn to see a face, but... They have to continually guess at whether that face is male or female. And what's really interesting here, to me, what's really interesting, the thing that's most interesting is that when we think about ensembles of sensations that, that brains learn, you know, they, so a brain doesn't learn just 
sound. It learns sound in the context of sights and smells and so on. The ever-present context is what's going on inside your own body. The sensations that come from your own body are part of that sensory array that you are that your brain is learning. So if you're really worked up while you are exposed to certain sights and sounds and smells, the whole pattern is what the brain captures, including what's inside your body. And what's in so that means that the state of your own body is a context that influences what you see and hear and taste and smell. So you're walking down the street, the usual idea is that we are just taking in the world and it's true and it's impartial and the world is, this is reality and we're just reacting to it. However, I think, I think the way it was put in when you were chatting on Visibilia was that everything around us is a blob until the concepts in your head shape it into a thing. I think the thing that's really important to remember is that your brain is wired by the world around you and by your physical body, by the internal systems of your body. It's like your brain is an artifact in a sense. The wiring is, is like an artifact of the environment that you grow up in. So emotions that seem to happen to you are, are actually made by you. The things that you think that you're just detecting in the world, other people's emotions or, or objects or whatever, are perceptions that your brain is participating in. So part of what you experience as the outside world comes from inside you. But it's not like you made it up. What's inside your brain, what, what your brain, the representations that your brain makes were, was wired by the world to begin with. And so all of that works really smoothly, except if you move and change environments. If you change environments, you go to a different culture, your brain was wired with one set of knowledge, but you're in a culture that has a different set. And so there's going to be some, you know, mismatch there. And that's why acculturation, as it's called, where you have to like learn the customs and practices of a new culture can be kind of a stressful thing. It can be fun when you're on holiday. It's not so fun uh, always when you're moving permanently to a new place. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? I would say be curious. Set aside your confidence that you know how things are and be curious. Uh, and you might, you know, you might discover something really important. You might learn something really, really important that can change your life. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Website, lisafeldmanbarrett.com, all one word. There are links to all of the books and to how emotions are made and, more, and also more academic books. There are links to other podcasts, to my TED Talks, to articles I've written for magazines and newspapers, and so on and so forth. Lisa, thank you so much for trying to take these massive massive topic and trying to distill it and speak in a way that we can all understand we really appreciate it well thank you so much this was really fun